Welcome to this very special episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. We have Anthrax, a drummer, a Charlie Benente, but no, we are not talking Anthrax. We are talking Kiss, but not just any Kiss. We are talking July 25th, 1980, Kiss at the Palladium in New York, the very, very first show with Eric Carr. I was there as an 11-year-old. Charlie was there as, I don't know, 37-year-old or something. But anyway, he was there. And it's a great story. So we're, we're going to do an hour or half an hour of nothing but one day in the life of Kiss and Alan Niven on the phone here. Ecstatic. He loves this. It's a favorite, favorite topic. Oui. Bonjour, Alain. Bonjour. You know what? I actually have a little Kiss story for you that Uh-oh. you may or may not know Uh-oh. that I, I found quite delightful. Go, go, um, I'm listening, I'm listening. I, I'm waiting I, for the shoe to drop. Uh, here comes the shoe. <laughs> Bob Dylan is obviously one of my heroes, and I am fascinated... With people who can't find sing? Out, I am fascinated to find out what I can that exposes, exhibits, and illustrates his personality and character, because I think he's far more grounded far more humorous than most people realize. And I found this little story where they were out with a, uh, he hadn't been touring for a long time, and he went out with a thing called Rolling Thunder. And one way or another, this extremely attractive 16-year-old blonde girl got into the mix backstage and Dylan one day sits her down and says, hey, honey, I just wrote a song for you. And he plays on a beat-up piano just like a woman and reduces this gorgeous 16-year-old to tears. Well, the 16-year-old was called Sharon Stone, and then she finds out that he actually wrote it 10 years previous. But she was kind of delighted that Dylan sang that song and dedicated it to her, even though he claimed that he wrote it for her, which I thought was kind of entertaining. But he called her Kiss because she was wearing a Kiss T-shirt. So everywhere that she was backstage, he would look at her and say, hey, Kiss, let me, let me play you a song. But Sharon Stone was Kiss to Bob Dylan. See, that makes sense to me. But here's even more exciting news. In uh, February of uh, 2018... Uh, Gene Simmons sat down with the Pulse of Radio to talk about how he wrote a few songs with his hero, Bob Dylan, which ended up on his vault uh, Gene Simmons release that he sold for $2,000. So there you go. Gene Simmons worked with Bob Dylan. Oh, Bob Dylan went to see Kiss in the very early days. He was interested. And another little link there is that if you see any film from the Rolling Thunder tour, you'll see that Bob Dylan is in whiteface. And he got that from watching Gene Simmons put makeup on prior to a gig. He thought it was interesting. And I will uh, will give you this quote from uh, Tommy Thayer 
which is uh, Kiss's guitarist. He goes, uh, Gene Simmons wrote a song with Bob Dylan, I'm guessing around 1991. One day I got a call from Gene and he said, get a drummer and a keyboard player and meet me at Cherokee Studios at 7 p.m. We're going to record like Bob Dylan. Uh, and he goes on to say, Gene was like a kid. Huh? There you go. Even... Well, how about, how about that? We managed to hook from the sublime to the whatever. We sublime, sublimer. Bob Dylan... We managed to link Bob Dylan to Gene Simmons. Yes, because Gene is ubiquitous. And he was ubiquitous this <laughs> night on uh, July 25th, 1980. One of the greatest uh, moments of my time that summer of 1980, a month before June 9th, 1980, at 11 years old. And I've said this a million times, and I'll keep saying it because bragging is fun. I got to interview Gene. And at the time, I said, who's the drummer? Who's the new drummer? And he goes, uh, we can't tell you, but we have picked somebody. And here, six weeks later, seven weeks later, I'm at the Palladium, and I'm watching them with Eric Carr. And so, uh, anyway, sit back, enjoy. Here is uh, Anthrax drummer Charlie Benente and myself talking about one of the great moments in rock history. Here's Charlie. We are speaking with Anthrax drummer Charlie Benante, but we are here today. To talk Kiss, uh, July 25th, 1980, they played the Palladium in New York City. I was there, Charlie was there, uh, not together, but we were there, and uh, we're going to geek out on some Kiss history, I guess is the proper term. Uh, bonjour, Charlie, how are you? Hi, how are you? Good. I'm uh, always excited to talk about the uh, the heyday of Kiss. Yeah, I, I mean, nothing is more fascinating than that show. So before we get into our own personal experiences, let, let me just start with the very sort of basic question. You know, you're a drummer, you were a drummer, uh, you loved Kiss in the 70s. What was it for you when Peter Chris stepped out? I mean, was that like a big loss? Like, oh my God, they're losing the drummer? Or was it more like, all right, well, let's see who's coming up. I'm, I'm kind of excited about this. How did you sort of take it on that drumming perspective? It was twofold because um, we were losing one of the original members. And the thing about Kiss losing a member, you're losing this identity. Um, uh, you know, Peter Chris, the cat. You know, it was so much more than a bass player from Foghat leaving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it was, uh, Peter Chris. Wow. I studied this guy. I studied his, you know, his drumming and all this stuff. So it became, uh, quite a big thing. Um, because and then the funny thing, of, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say you're, you're right because Kiss, unlike a lot of the other bands, you know, you look at Foreigner and Foghat and all these, they were sort of nameless, faceless, right? You, you knew Foreigner. And you knew Urgent, but you didn't know who the guy, you know, you didn't know, you know, Dennis or whoever. Uh, but with Kiss, they branded everything. So now all of a sudden, one of the faces, you know, wasn't going to be on the posters. And that was like, oh, oh, that's what's going on here. Um, so, so let me just ask you about Peter in that sense. You said you studied Peter. Was he an early, early, early influence or was he one of the guys you eventually got to? Like, who's that one drummer where you just go, oh, man, this guy is the guy and I need to know how he plays. I mean, was it Mitch Mitchell? Was it was it just Peter? Was it somebody else? It was a, it was a few drummers. Like, I've never been like partial um, to, every, you know, every, you know, every drummer. But there was definitely, uh, uh, you know, a handful of guys that helped shape the drummer that, you know, that I was becoming. 
Peter was definitely one of those guys. Um, I would study his drum solo on a live. And the thing that, that would always freak me out is I would see pictures of Peter playing two different kits around that time. Um, if you opened up the Alive booklet, it looked like Peter was playing these three massive toms in the front of him. But that was just the angle or fisheye lens that made them look bigger. But then I would see pictures of him around that time where he was playing these smaller toms that were just kind of single-headed. Um, and I would listen to like bootlegs that I would buy back in the day, uh, you know, on vinyl. One was called Fried Alive and then one was called Anaheim or Can-Am, whatever. I forget what it was, but and I, was I think just it was Kiss Destroys Anaheim. Band. I think wasn't it Kiss Destroys Anaheim? Kiss Destroys, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I had yeah, the same book. It was that one. It was Friday. I love all these books. And, uh, and Takes Peter Tokyo. Would, Takes Tokyo was my, oh, I love that one. Um, but Peter, Peter Solo was different. Um, it was still great, but it didn't have that alive sound to it where Eddie Kramer put on that like flange, flanger effect on it to just take it to a different level because without the effect on that solo, it's a drum solo. It's great drum solo. I love the way he, he splits it into like three parts, but when Eddie put that effect on top of it, it took it to another level. Oh yeah. It, it completely did. So, all right. So let's, let's get to, to July 25th. Now I drove down with my mom from, from Montreal, you know, seven, eight hours in the car and, and we had to go to a ticket reseller in New Jersey and we spent 35 bucks on these tickets, which Folks that are like, wow, that's a great deal. It's like, yeah, yeah. in 1980, 35 bucks on a ticket was like spending, you know, 250 on a ticket today. Um, who did you go with? Was it the other guys in Anthrax? Was it uh, just somebody? You, you go with your mom? Who, who did you go to the show with? So I went with a group of friends. But leading up to this, there's a whole other chapter to this story. All right, um, let's hear it. We knew, we knew, um, so back in like 70... 77, around that time, me and two friends of mine went to get tickets uh, for, for, for a KISS show. And just on a hunch, we went down to Rocksteady Management, a coin management, which was on M Madison Avenue in Manhattan. We had just gotten tickets. And I was young at the time, really young. They were a bit older. And we waited outside of a coin management for a bit and Paul Stanley came walking up and true story. Paul invited us up to rock steady, up to coin management oh, in the wow. elevator. We got out of the elevator. There was a receptionist there and right there was that jukebox that Paul did an interview for, I believe it was, um, uh, 2020 special. I don't know if you remember that. I do. I do. And and I've been to those old coin um, management offices. That's where I did my Gene Simmons interview back in 1980. That's awesome. So, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Then. And Paul, Paul got us three pictures, three eight by tens and assigned them for each one of us. And he was wearing a wig at the time because he was still trying to protect his, you know, the mystique of kiss at the time. So, um, it was one of the greatest days of, of my life till, at that point. I remember going home and showing all my friends and it was a great thing. And then that started to become a thing that we started to do. And we got to see Gene a couple of times and Ace. Um, so let's 
go fast forward well, now. Let me just ask you one question about Peter that. Leaves. But, but were you just hanging out as fans and they invited you up just as, hey, I'm being nice yes. to a fan? Okay, so it wasn't a musician thing. You weren't you weren't yes. Charlie Benente of anything at that time. You were just... No, no. That's actually kind of cool that they would do that because you would think, especially in the mid-70s when they were at the height of their popularity, that they would just blow you off and say, ugh, get, you know, call security, get these kids out of here. So that's actually a very cool story. But let, yes, let's nope. fast forward. He invited the, the three. He invited the three of us upstairs, and we had a conversation. He signed pictures for us, and that was it. And it was like I said, it was just such a great experience. Okay, so um, Peter leaves the band, and we had these mutual friends who knew Kiss very well at the time, and they were doing auditions at um, at a rehearsal place way down in uh, in the city near the village. And we went and I remember sh- sitting in like this waiting room with all these other drummers. And I was like 15 at the time. And they said, you're too young to, to try it out. <laughs> um, and uh, they were there. Kiss was there. They were rehearsing. They were auditioning drummers. And it was another crazy experience. Um, and then I remember going down again, seeing them and saw Eric. And then Eric was chosen and that was it. It was like, wow, it, it, it was a crazy time. That's, that, that's very, so, and they were going to do a show. But at this rehearsal did, or at these rehearsals, did you actually get to hear them jam the songs with like drummer X, Y, and yes. Z? Oh, Wow. Yes, we heard we were in the, we we heard like some some rehearsing going on. Uh, I didn't know if it was Eric at the time or another drummer at the time. Um, and then we went down again, and there was nobody like waiting there. And like I said, that's when I saw Eric for the first time. And Eric was totally cool. Well, and, and he and said, "No know, security, he, nothing. No, they they just they let these random fans hang out. That's actually very cool of them." John think? Hart was John Hart was John Hart was there, and he and another guy um, George Sewitt was there, I believe. Look at that! The, it's the it's the rock royalty of Kiss hanging out. Um, so so when was this rehearsal that you saw? Was this in June of nineteen eighty, or was this nineteen seventy nine? Where where I mean, it can't be seventy nine. There was a Dynasty tour, but so so what month was this? Were, were these rehearsals going on? It was it was definitely like May June because it was warm out. I remember that, and um, and uh, I mean eventually we had to leave. We had to go downstairs outside, um, but yeah, we were up there, and they were totally amazing. And at that point, you know, they would come out, and there was just a small group of us out there, and they would talk, and they said, you know meet our new drummer here and you know eric was there and eric was very quiet and it was it was awesome and then we heard that they were going to do a show and we were so excited about it now when they're hanging out and you're you're meeting eric were they in costume no probably not right they were all barefaced wow no any pictures of that they were they were all no i don't have any pictures at that point damn it i wish i did but like I said, there were these girls who used to hang with Kiss and they were called the Kissettes and we knew them and they were also there that day. 
so maybe a picture somewhere exists now so that's interesting that you say that it was it was warm weather because you know I interviewed Gene like I said on June 9th 1980 and at the time I, I asked him I said you have a new drummer he goes yes but we're not ready to announce it and of course the show was like six weeks later so it amazes me that in May perhaps they still didn't have a drummer or they were still whittling down the list to get the guy. That's, that's kind of fascinating that it was that yeah, close. That seems, yeah. That yeah. seems more realistic because the weather, the weather was nice. Now, of course the weather in, in New York probably gets nice around, you know, end of March, early April, but still it, it's amazing that they went from, you know, the dynasty tour, uh, Peter leaving and this palladium show all within you know, I saw them August of 79 in Montreal and the uh, Dynasty Tour went, what, till December or something? So in that seven-month period, they got a new guy, auditioned a new guy, got a new character, got new makeup. Got, like, it, when you look at the timeline, it's actually kind of spectacular what they were able to do in six months, you know? Well, exactly. And you think about it, they also put a, put a record out. Yeah, well, yes, but they had Anton help them. So they, <laughs> but yeah, yeah you're right. they had Anton, but I'm saying they they knew this was going on and they were still trying to be, you know, business as usual, which which was great. They didn't want to lose any momentum, though um I think Peter leaving had more of an impact than they really thought it would would, would have. Though, though, you know, now from in the 2020 perspective, when we read about what was going on, you know, before the Kiss movie and the Dynasty tour and Anton being on Dynasty, I think that perhaps the perception by, you know, January of 1980 is like, eh, Peter checked out three years ago. So changing him is not going to be such a big upheaval. But for fans, of course, who didn't know all of this stuff going on, it was a big upheaval. So... All right, we, we get to uh, July 25th at, at the Palladium, and the Rockettes, I believe, open. I have, I have pictures of this somewhere. Um, what, what was your impression of the band? I mean, when, you know, for me, coming from Montreal, uh, I was still 11 years old at the time. I'm in New York. I'm in a venue. It, it, it's, it's big. It's scary. It's New York City. It's... it's I mean, there was a whole lot of other stuff going on than just Kiss. But for you, who born and raised there, I mean, you're just going to another show. No big deal. Uh, what was that like when they, they, they're, they're not playing Madison Square Garden and they're in the little tiny club and they come out and you look at the drum at the drums and you see this massive drum kit and it's not Peter. What, what was sort of your first impressions? Well, I knew Eric, you know, was, was going to be the drummer. And, but I was... I was pretty excited about it, to be honest with you. I I thought that um, everything looked massive, and they were in Kiss fashion, still going big or, or go home. And at, at, when they came on the stage, dude, I was fucking excited. I mean, I couldn't. I, it it bothered me that Peter wasn't there, but I kind of welcomed Eric a bit a bit more than maybe other people did. When when you heard his live drumming. And, you know, listen, you know, in 2020, you're Charlie Benente of Anthrax and, and you play a, a mean power drum. I mean, you bash like no other guy bashes. What was it like for you at that time at 15 or 16 hearing, you know, going from the, the swinging jazzy Peter Chris stuff to this guy who came out and pounded Detroit Rock City, pounded Colgin, pounded Strutter? 
what was sort of your impressions when you know did your ears perk up did you go ooh ooh listen to that yes oh, absolutely because he was doing more in the song than peter had done and yeah this is the other part that's a little um is a little weird but peter's drumming uh, in the past two years or you know when i saw the dynasty tour uh it wasn't the old peter um it was a little strange. It was more subdued, just kind of just, it wasn't that guy. It wasn't that cat back there anymore. He was just kind of, maybe his lives were just kind of took its toll on him and he was <laughs> down to his last one. It just wasn't exciting anymore. And it was, uh, I mean, when I saw them the second time on the dynasty run, or maybe it was the third time and they had Judas priest opening for them. Judas Priest completely won me over that night. What, what a great band to see opening for Kiss. I got New England, which wasn't so bad, but um, you but you said that, that was first. That was the first. Uh, yeah, that was in August, and and I guess that would have been July for you. I, I'm assuming you saw them at Madison Square, right? So that would have been July for you. Yeah, I went both nights. Right. Um, but but you, you you said something interesting there. You said that that Eric was doing a lot more within the song. Is that something that you as a drummer practices where it's important to get more out of the instrument and, and you're doing a, you know, a whatever song, an anthrax song, whatever. And is it important to have more parts, more fills, more cymbals, more of this? Or was there a certain elegance to Peter's more open air, laid back kind of style? How do you sort of see the drumming thing? Well, I think Eric completely... I, he, maybe those guys told him, dude, do what you want. You know, if you want to add a double kick in Detroit Rock City, do it. You know what I mean? Just go for it. You know, maybe they were looking for something new too. And I think Eric really gave them the kick too, that they all needed because I thought Eric's playing on the next album was fucking awesome. When we, when we go back to, to history, uh, you know, the elder drum sound was certainly uh, something to listen to. But when you get to Creatures of the Night, I mean, that's that's sort of like the ultimate sound, right? I mean, that's that's the one that everybody wants to have, you know. So um, I think that record really put Eric on the map. I mean, he's the new drummer in Kiss. But I think Creatures of the Night definitely showed everyone he's not just a replacement. He is... Uh, you know, something to look, you know, listen to and look to, you know, and um, I really think he stepped it up. And I think Eric's uh, character really started to come out. And especially in a lot of those songs, too. He definitely drove those songs. Well, yeah, listen, uh, you can say what you want about I love it loud, but ultimately it's a drum song. You know, if if you take out that, that it's boom, a drum boom, song, 100 percent. Um just quickly, you know, I, at my age now, have seen somewhere around 50 KISS shows, give or take. I think I'm at 47 or something. I'm assuming that you in the position you're in, you've probably seen somewhere around the same, if not a lot more. Um, how do you look back on this? Because for me, there's three shows. The first show in 1979, you'll never, you'll never top that. That was the first memory, the first encounter, the first love. The... Unmasked show is hard to top because it's it's kissing a club with a new drummer. And then, of course, the reunion tour show in Detroit. You you, you know, massive stadium. The four guys are back. You, you're not going to beat that. 
But for you, how how does this show stack up in, in the ones you've seen? Um, the first time I saw this was at the end of 1976. And it was the first time I'm seeing them in front of me. And it was like an out-of-body experience. Um, one song would finish, and I didn't have time to even absorb what I just saw. And then the next song would come on and I'd be back into that, you know, trance. Um, I, I just remember my looking at my sister cause she took me and she knew like he's fucking enjoying this because it was, it was the thing that I've looked forward to for so long. And here I am, I'm there seeing it for the first time. And it was, uh, definitely an experience that I'll, I'll never forget your first time doing anything, but especially seeing the band that you love and you have pictures of them everywhere in your room. It's just a, you know, it's a moment in time. Oh, it, <laughs> um, it, it really so is. That first experience was great. Oh, you're not going to beat the first one. Um, are you surprised to learn all these years later that, there, there's no recording of this. It's not videotaped. I mean, you would have thought somewhere along the line, the first show with with Eric Carr would thought, make I, a great live release. You would think, and like, is it true? Or, or uh, there, I thought there would there had to be something. I mean, every time you see something that's Palladium related, it's not the Palladium. It's that Australian show or something, um, uh, which was awesome. That. Uh, the show in Australia, but um, I thought Kiss was was definitely on the road. I thought that was the the kick that they needed, but it just didn't go that way. And then I guess they were kind of forced a couple of years later to just take off the makeup and um, try and reinvent the wheel. And they did somewhat successfully here. And and, and I'll just end on this. Uh, you know, Kiss in in the eighties. Uh, with Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and all those bands and that sort of hair metal thing becoming very popular, Kiss sort of tried to follow along. But do you think we actually got to hear Eric Carr's potential? You know, had Kiss gone in and done sort of a, a Diary of a Madman Aussie record with massive guitars in 1986 and instead of, you know, whatever, Asylum, do you think we would have heard more from Eric? Do you think he was sort of throttled or held back or he did what he had to do? That's a good question because I don't know how much freedom Eric was given at that point to, to expand his style. Or, I mean, when you would go see them during those tours, Eric did a massive drum solo, which showcased his playing. Um, but I, I still think his best playing is on the elder and on creatures of the night. That's a, uh, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, everybody talks about creatures of the night, and, but nobody ever says his best playing is on, on the elder. I guess I'm going to have to go back and re-listen specifically to his drum tracks on that, because I don't know about you, but I, I, I remember that first time I opened the elder and stuck it on the, on the vinyl, you know, on the record player. And I just went, Oh, Oh, what's this? And, and, and that feeling of, Oh, yeah, right, right. You know what I I'm think, talking about. That that feeling uh, that feeling has never escaped me 40 years later or whatever, 38 years later. But there there's there's but there's songs on that record um especially The Oath where Eric's playing is awesome. I mean, he's doing this fast double kick which for back then that wasn't really, you know, common. Uh and I thought 
my original thought on the elder was this is kiss trying to be pink floyd the wall um and i just think that there's great songs on that too i just think the production didn't sound like kiss which is something that always bothered me about them like destroyer didn't sound like kiss but rock and roll over sounds like kiss well listen we we can have a long debate about bob ezrin i love bob as a producer but i've always said that bob makes bob ezrin solo albums and it's like you know Bob Ezrin presents Welcome to My Nightmare featuring Alice Cooper. Bob Ezrin makes Destroyer featuring Kiss. <laughs> and 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 Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Right? And 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 it's great that he does that, but it bothers me that you get to Destroyer and you've got Steve Hunter on there and you've got Dick Wagner on there and you've got choirs and you've got his kids and you and you know and you you get to um uh, 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 Alice Cooper and Welcome to My Nightmare and he's got Prakash John and he's got a whole bunch you know the, all of a sudden these these records become 87 people and you're like eh, but, but I like the four guys can, can we just have the four guys so but anyway uh, I'll tell you a funny story about yeah. Bob, Bob Ezrin he um, we played LA we were playing the Palladium in LA and Snake from Skid Row came down and he brought Bob with him Bob Ezrin and I had never met Bob Ezrin before, and I was completely excited to to meet Bob Ezrin because back in the 70s, uh, people like Bob Ezrin, Eddie Kramer, um, uh, Roy Thomas Baker, these were producers who I read their names on many records and respected everything that they've done. So um, I had just finished reading this article about the wall. It was a pretty big article and they really went deep into it. They said that some of the Pink Floyd members didn't play on certain songs. And uh, we know that some of the Beach Boys did background vocals on that too. So I immediately asked him about this report, that, that the story that I read, and he immediately lit up like, that is absolutely untrue. I don't know where that came from, but I can to totally tell you that Nick Mason is on every one of those songs. And I'm like, okay, dude, just telling you what I read. <laughs> um, so to me, it's like, I don't know if Ace was intimidated back during the, the Destroyer thing and that's why he didn't show up. Or he just didn't show up because he was fucked up and had to go to a card game, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I'm just looking at, it, like, even the most recent Alice Cooper ones, you know, uh, Welcome to My Nightmare 2 and all this. Alice got this great band with Nita Strauss and Tommy and Ryan and all that, and then they go into the studio with Bob, and he replaces everybody, and it's like, oh, come on, just just give us the band, the, the, the people that are going to be on stage performing these songs, give us those guys and girls. You know, but anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you know Absolutely. Like, if, if they're good enough on stage, then yes. yeah. track them. I mean, can, can you imagine, you know, Anthrax goes in to make a record and we find out, oh, Charlie did everything and only uh, only uh, Joey is singing, but uh, he did, uh, Charlie did the leads and Charlie did the rhythms and Charlie did the drums and Frank wasn't available, so Charlie did the bass. He'd be like, well, then it's not an Anthrax record. It's just a record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and anyway, uh, on that, uh, always, always a pleasure. And that Palladium show, like I've said, for me, it was the second show I've ever seen. My, my first two shows were Kiss, you know, hey, thank the Lord. And it just went from, from great to better. You know, 
August of 79 at the Forum. You see that stuff, and the guys come out from under the ground, and it was just fantastic. And then to see that second show at 11 years old in New York City. I mean, it's the city, right? I mean, it's it's you can talk about Montreal and Toronto and Moscow or whatever, but New York is the city. Uh, just great, great memories. And great, great memories for you. Great memories. And for, I was... Um, I did something with Mark Weiss a couple of weeks back about his book that came out. We did like a Zoom thing. And the first time I ever met Mark Weiss was at that show. And he was there with, of all people, Matt Dillon, the actor at the time. And I remember seeing Mark in front of the Palladium, hanging with Matt Dillon. And I recognized Mark from like Circus Magazine. I ran right over to him. I said, yo, Mark Weiss. And he was like, yep. And he gave me a new copy of Circus Magazine that was about to come out. And uh, and I and he's like, I remember that show. And I remember that day and walking with Matt Dillon. So it was, it was pretty funny. Like all the people that I know till this day, some of them were actually there. You know what? I have, my mom took a whole bunch of pictures of me standing outside the Palladium. I'm going to go dig these out right now. I'm going to go see if I can see Mark Weiss or you or, or Matt Dillon because the, the, we, we, have, we have a bunch of pictures of me standing in line at the Palladium with whoever was standing next to me. So, you know, that'd be kind of funny to, to see like Mark Weiss, you know, photobombing me Absolutely. from 40s. Oh, that's great. Well, well anyway, what a, what a great show. And by the way, that, that book that Mark put out, um, the decade that rock, I think it's believed the, the, the decade that rocked, I think it's yep, called. Yeah. That is a yep. phenomenal Absolutely. book. If you're a fan and we're going to plug Mark right now, but if you're a fan, go buy that book. And in fact, buy two, because you probably have a friend who's going to come over to your house, look at it and say, damn, I want one of those. And you can just give them one. So buy two. It's a great book. Yeah. It's a great book. It's like definitely brings you back to a time that was so great for, for rock fans. And I often say um, people who are rock fans nowadays are totally, uh, man, it's, 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 it's not, I'm not going to say it's the worst time to be a rock fan, but those times was a great time, man, because it just, that book encompasses everything that was about it, you know? Yes, and and like it or not, most of us had those pictures, Mark's pictures. You know, there, there was three. There was the there was Weiss, there was uh, um, Halfin, and, and who's the other guy I'm yeah. thinking of? Um, the guy who was on on the West Coast, um, uh, uh, Nick? No, not Nick. anyway. But those so three. You, so you you had you had you had Niels Lozauer. That's the guy, Niels Lozauer. Um, That's the guy, the West Coast guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, you had Halfin, you had Mark Weiss, and of course there's other photographers too, right. like the, the Gene Ambos, the, um, uh, God, now everybody else is, is, is right. uh, leaving but, me. But, but, but yeah, the point is, those three, people. those three were in every, whether you bought Metal Edge or Circus or Hit Parader or Groove or Cream, those guys, they, they were everywhere. And so the pictures they took are the stories that are in my head, right? When I think back to 19-whatever, I see a Mark Weiss picture, or I see a Zlozauer picture, or I see a Halfin picture, and they were as important as the actual albums and the actual concerts and the actual music because they are the visual history of that time. Absolutely, absolutely. And Mark is also responsible for a lot of album covers, ours being one, uh, on, on the man cover, he did, of course, the Bon Jovi. He did the Twisted Sister, you know, Cinderella. I mean, he, 
Mark was not only, you know, a guy who had pictures in magazines, he did album covers too. And which I think was, stands the test of time because it, it definitely is a moment in time when you look at these album covers. Listen, absolutely. And, and, you know, on my Twitter, I do all this on this day stuff and I, I deal with these. I album love co- that. I love that. Thank you, by the way. And I, but I deal with these album covers daily and they're just iconic. You, you think of slippery when wet and you go, wow, it's a garbage bag with water on it. But you know what? That album cover whatever it is now, 36 years later, 35, everybody knows what Slippery When Wet looks like. Can't, de- can't deny Absolutely. that. Twisted Sister album, everybody knows what it looks like. And it's as iconic as We're Not Gonna Take It or as Living on a Prayer. You can't think of Living on a Prayer without thinking of the album cover. And that's Mark. Mark, Mark is brilliant. Mark is brilliant. He is. Anyway, sir, thank you for this today. And uh, I will uh, I will share and send you these links when available, but... Folks, that Palladium show, if you weren't there, man, you missed something. And if you were, you know exactly what me and Charlie were talking about today. It is just a moment in time that will never be forgotten. Yeah, well, exactly. It's a, It was a definitely a moment in time. And uh, it's part of my, you know, mental <laughs> hard drive. Thank you, sir. Let me just turn this off. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.